Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Safer Use, a safe space to explore drugs and talk about addictions. I'm your host, Savannah Snow. In this series, I will be interviewing guests about safe experimentation of substances popularly used by college students. Today's episode is about cocaine, and I'm joined today by Kevin Cunningham from Turning Point. Say hi. Hello, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for having me out. Much Thank appreciated. You. Thank you for being here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into working with Turning Point, what your background is, things like that? Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Um, I've been with Turning Point for almost five years now, working most of the programs and services that Turning Point offers. So I've bounced around from night reach, doing outreach downtown Red Deer. And then I've also worked um, outreach, working with people with HIV and Hep C and other STBBIs. Um, now I'm mainly focused in overdose prevention. So teaching people how to recognize an overdose and respond using naloxone. Mm -hmm. So that's the main main stick of what I do now. Awesome, yeah, it seems like you have a pretty diverse diverse background, which is awesome. I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah, one of the things I do off the side of my desk too in my, in my spare time is volunteer at festivals like Chambalade Base Coast in the harm reduction programs there. So I've seen a lot of different substance use in different environments. So mm -hmm. I've seen some, some of the more survival use of substances on the street level, but then also the recreational side of things in festivals That's where awesome. people are partying and looking to have fun and then wind up seeing seeing us in the sanctuary or the harm reduction program because things aren't going well for whatever reason. Right. I mean, it happens and it's good that you guys are there to help. Yeah, for sure. Right. Okay, well, let's dive into some of our topics today. So we'll start with the very basic question of what exactly is cocaine? Okay, that's a great question. Um, cocaine has been around for a really long time and was actually is that is actually actually sacred to the Andean people of South America, hmm. and so it's made it's a stimulant made from cocoa leaves um, native to South America that can be consumed orally, snorted or injected, sometimes smoked as crack cocaine, which crack is seems to be more of a highly stigmatized mm -hmm. compared to cocaine. But it's funny, they're both the same drug. It's just the route of administration is a little different. Gotcha. But historically, it was used as a mild stimulant, um, sacred to the Andean people, um, even by Sherpas to avoid altitude sickness. So mm. they would put the cocoa leaves in, in their lips or drink the tea, and it would help them overcome altitude sickness. That's awesome. I had no idea that it dated that far back. Yeah, yeah, it goes back thousands of years. Who wow. knows? Wow. Um, and it's in a classification of drugs of stimulants. So if we think of other stimulants, think coffee, methamphetamine, nicotine, those are some very common stimulants that people use or pharmaceutical stimulants, um, things like Adderall or um, another common one is Vyvanse. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, on to my next question. Um, so if you're going to use cocaine, how addictive is it? How much, how many times do you have to use before you become addicted to it? That's a really tough question to answer just because it, every substance hits people in different ways right. and people metabolize it different. And I choose, since doing this work for so long and seeing what I've seen, I would rather not look at substances on a spectrum right. of addictiveness and Look at the person and what puts them at risk of addiction or substance use disorder. So what are some things that would put you at risk of being more likely to get addicted to this? Yeah, things like trauma, um, adverse childhood experiences, being bullied, mm. um, neglected by parents or caregivers, um, the kind of environment people are in, um, 
the sense of purpose in the world, meaningful work, um, how their relational health is going. All these kind of things are what put people at uh, risk for substance use disorder, which is the medical term for addiction now. Right. Um, yeah, but uh, I, I always look as, at addiction as it's always defined by the person, not their family or their friends. Mm -hmm. A lot of times um, loved ones, well-meaning, will jump in and think that their loved one has an addiction, but the person themselves d doesn't see it. So it's always defined by that person. And I, I view it as any behavior that a person finds temporary relief or pleasure from. It involves cravings, experiencing negative consequences in life. Um, despite those, uh, those positive things, people are, are going to be experiencing problems in their, in their life and they have difficulty giving it up. Hmm. Is it because um, how trauma affects kind of your brain pathways and things like that, where you're actively seeking out more, um, <clears throat> I guess, serotonin boosts. And so with a stimulant like Coke, it would, you'd, you'd be more likely to take to it because of your brain being starved for that kind of serotonin. Am I correct in that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if somebody grows up with lower levels of serotonin or the feel-good chemicals, dopamine, and then tries cocaine and gets a flood of it, mm. then finally gets those feel-good chemicals, no wonder people are going to go after that again and again. Yeah, that um, makes a lot of sense. I know for myself, I, I was able to use cocaine and not really develop a problem with it. Um, opioids were my problem uh, mm. where I developed a substance use disorder, but I, it was like a warm hug. It felt um, this was opioids for me, and mm -hmm. it's described that way to me over and over and over again, and it's no wonder people... Um, enjoy that because who wouldn't want a warm hug? Yeah, but, it's comforting, especially yeah, it comforting. if you're yeah you're starved for serotonin. You you're not getting enough in your life, and your brain has been permanently altered to need more, right? Something else really interesting about that is the paradoxical effect of stimulants, where um, there could be an untreated or undiagnosed ADHD. Um, in the person mm. if they find calmness or relief from stimulants. So if they're doing coke and finding a sense of calmness, which I see it over and over again with meth use too, someone might be unpacking their bag, repacking their, their bag, can't sit still, mm -hmm. but then goes and smokes meth and comes back and sits down and is very calm. And chances are they have undiagnosed ADHD. Interesting. And once we give the mind a stimulant, it's constantly seeking stimulation. And then finally, when we give it a stimulant, it calms down. Yeah, I've heard that about um, coffee and ADHD, and you had said coffee is a, a stimulant, right? So that's uh, that's very interesting. I had no idea that that's, that was a thing. So have people found and went and got diagnosed for ADHD after discovering this? Have you heard of any stories of that? Yeah, I have heard of people doing that. Yeah, for that's sure. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, okay, let's move on. So Coke itself, what additives are usually mixed with it? I, I'm aware that usually um, the cocaine that you find, um, you know, on the streets is not pure cocaine. So what can we expect to see mixed in with it? Yeah, there's um, there's two major ones to, to look out for. Well, three I'll mention. The first one is fentanyl. Um, mm. That is happening out there. It's not common, but people are out there partying using stimulants like MDMA, cocaine, or meth. Mm -hmm. And then, lo and behold, a, a potent opioid like um, fentanyl or carfentanil shows up. And I don't think it's some evil drug dealer who's sprinkling um, fentanyl in there. It's probably a sloppy drug dealer who is weighing up a bunch of fentanyl, selling multiple sub substances, 
or gets to wipe the scale off, then weighs up some coke after. Gotcha. Cross-contamination. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And all it takes is a few grains. So maybe if there was an empty baggie kicking around that had fentanyl in it before, just a few grains in there, or the unclean scale is enough for that cross-contamination. And that can put someone at risk of an overdose, especially because they're not expecting opioids to be in there. Right. And that's that does happen. So please come see us at Turning Point, get trained in naloxone, have somebody around who knows how to use it. And um, you can definitely stay alive if there is that cross-contamination. Yeah, I guess you you would never know um, when it would be in there, right? Like that's, if you're not testing your drugs actively, um, it, it's good to be trained on that because you have no idea when somebody's going to go down. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you can test your substances at getyourdrugstested.com. It's a service out of Vancouver and it takes about a week to two to get the results back. But what you do is you send a small sample size about the size of a match head through the mail to Vancouver and they put it under a mass spectrometer, FTIR um, imaging, and then they can tell what's in that substance in that sample and they can break it down and say, well, there's 60% cocaine and 30% levamisol, for example. Mm -hmm. And they can break it down. Um, and the most common things that are in there are levamisol, which is a chemical compound used to treat worms and animals. So that's oh. a common additive that shows up in cocaine. And it causes fever, immune system uh, suppression, skin necrosis, so dying of skin cells um, due to lack of oxygena oxygenated blood. It uh, can create kidney issues, um, opportunistic infections from the suppressed immune system. And this is from chronic daily use. This isn't um, experimentation once in a while. This is probably daily repeated use multiple times per day. Okay, wow. What are the proportions usually? Do you, do you know? Like is it, you'd said 60 and you know 30 or whatever, but um, do you know like generally drug dealers now, how, how much are they cutting cocaine with uh, was levamisole levamisole thank you um it's actually there's if you go and search getyourdrugstested.com you can see all of western canadians canada's drug testing results so from oh. vancouver calgary edmonton red deer and you can just search cocaine and see what's is showing up in western canada and there's actually quite a bit of pure cocaine which is good um, so 100% just cocaine is in the bag. That's it. That's good. Um, something to keep in mind about testing technology, though, they just sample size a small amount of the bag. So if you um, sample size the corner of the bag, the other corner could have fentanyl or mm. other additives in there. So that's the uh, limitations of the technology. But um, yeah, or phenacetin is another thing that shows up in a lot of the cocaine. And that's a pain and fever reducing drug uh, used in human and veterinary medicine, and it was di discontinued in the 70s because it was found to be dangerous mm -hmm. for human consumption. But it's still accessible to use to cut cocaine with. Yeah, so people are probably buying it off um, the dark web or mm -hmm. somewhere from who knows where. Um, they can buy any sort of research chemical or old chemicals that have been discontinued. Interesting. Which, so what were the health effects of that one that they made it they made them discontinue it? It was a carcinogen. Okay, so, gotcha. Yeah, there was cancer causing effects. And mm -hmm. that shows up in anywhere from you can search the results on get your drugs tested, but it could be 10% or 15% or 30%. Right. Okay, that's really useful information. Um, so 
you had talked about the risks of some of the additives, but you had also said that these risks usually only come with repeated use. Are there any other risks we should know about if you are repeatedly using multiple times a day? Yeah, for sure. Um, just the thing to keep in mind is hepatitis C from sharing up rolled bills, hmm. um, snorting. Common, common in snorting cocaine is passing around a plate of cocaine with one rolled up bill. Mm -hmm. And everybody's using that same bill to snort the cocaine. The problem with that is that bill isn't very sterile. So money is one of the dirtiest things um, when looked under the microscope. So yeah. that sort of is a way that bacteria can enter your mucous membranes in your nose. Mm -hmm. And hepatitis C can be shared from person to person by a small amount of blood on the end of that bill. And then um, going into the person's mucus, mucus mem membrane, hepatitis C is definitely a concern. Oh, goodness. And there is a cure for hep C. Um, the only way to find out if somebody has it is to get tested. So mm -hmm. access STBVI testing at the street clinic or the sexual health clinic or any medical provider. Um, doctors, general practitioners can order sexual health testing. Mm -hmm. And we want to normalize that too, just like going to get people's teeth cleaned. That's pretty normalized. Sexual health testing should be normalized to once a year, once every six months. Absolutely. The sexual health clinic, I know that's uh, downtown, um, off towards the edge of downtown. Where is the street clinic? I don't think I've heard of this one. Yeah, the street clinic is right downtown um, in the River Valley building. Okay. So yeah, it's right downtown, really accessible. And they're great down there at the street clinic or Care Gateway. There's a number of places that can um, do anonymous testing. Yeah, the um, I used to go to the sexual health clinic when I was uh, a younger adult, and um, <clears throat> I loved the people there. Uh, they were all very friendly. It was very discreet. Um, nobody's trying to embarrass you. Everyone's there for the same reason, right? So yeah. it is it is a necessary part of your health to go get tested for things, regardless of um, you know what your lifestyle is. Yeah, exactly. Oh, because Hep C, there is a cure for it, and yeah. it's an eight to twelve week round of. Um, pills that are antivirals and a person can be cured of hep C. So that's good to know. If you're cured of hep C, can you catch it again? You can catch it again. Okay. So instead of using that rolled up um, bill and sharing with everybody, people can just get a straw or come mm -hmm. to us at Turning Point and get a, a glass straight shooter. And then everybody can put their name on it and have their own. And the thing to keep in mind is to don't keep the same straw for extended periods and throw it in my pocket or in purses <laughs> and then because that gets dirty and lots of bacteria that's a way that people can um, have an infection enter their body. Mm -hmm. um, okay so we've talked a little bit about safe experimentation but from your point of view what does that look like with cocaine? Yeah so this I mentioned these things as an ideal it's always a practice it's never per perfection I've experimented many times and not followed all of the all of these like the bible so this is an ideal situation. Um, someone should purchase their cocaine two to two to three weeks um, before using it, and then send a small sample size into getyourdrugstested.com. Find out what's in there, and then you can better navigate um, that experience. Also, too, you can go to tripsit.com and check out a drug combination chart that. Mm. Many times, when people end up in the harm reduction program at a festival, it's because they didn't take into consideration they're experimenting with street drugs or cocaine, MDMA, party drugs, and then they also take pharmaceuticals. So this drug combination guide can tell you what drugs um, to, to avoid combining. And it's pretty interesting what's what's on that TRIPSIT guide. So please yeah. do seek that out. Um, 
before using because cocaine might not jive with one of the pharmaceuticals that you're taking. So it's good to find that stuff out before taking cocaine. Yeah, no kidding. I had no idea that that resource existed. I feel like that would be beneficial just for regular everyday stuff where I'm Googling, oh, is my Advil going to react with my antidepressant? Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's an awesome resource. Um, yeah, another thing you could do is just sit with the, the bag of Coke when you're going to use it and sit, sit, hold it close to your body and ask, why am I using this? Is it to party? Is it to socialize? Yeah, am I using it alone? Um, is it to enhance sex? Bring some more awareness around why you're using the substance instead of um, just whim off whimsical just using it because a friend had it one night, which is okay. I'm not shaming that either, but yeah. this is ideally to find out why you're using it. And, well, it's, um, it's almost like uh, setting an intention. Yeah, setting, right? say, setting an intention with it, exactly. Hmm. Um, if somebody wants to use a loan, there's a National Overdose Response Service uh, where somebody can call a 188 number. That number is 188-688-NORS-6677. And a peer will sit on the other end of the phone. So people who are using a loan can sit there and be in communication with this peer and come up with an emergency response plan. So if this person uses coke and then goes down of an opioid poisoning, 10, 15 minutes later, then that person on the other end of the phone can enact the emergency response plan and then send EMS services or send someone with naloxone mm -hmm. um, to respond to that person if they're using a loan. Would you be able to set your emergency response to be somebody you trust? Yep, exactly. Awesome. So if someone has naloxone a few doors down in the apartment building, then yeah, you can um, get that peer to call that person to enact that re emer mm -hmm. emergency response plan. I love that because I know there's some, there's a lot of, um, I guess, wariness around emergency services and the police and whatnot and drug use because we've all been living and uh, watching, you know, the war against drugs over the last, I don't know how many years. Um, and so I guess there's, there's probably a lot of distrust around authority figures. And so having the option to be able to have that kind of service call a friend instead is super valuable. Yeah, it's, it is valuable. And there is the Good Samaritan law where police cannot arrest for simple possession at the scene of an overdose. So please do call for help. If somebody's breathing is impacted in any way, use naloxone, come to a turning point, get trained by one of our staff and have someone there, have, have like a designated driver or a sitter who's watching somebody as the group uses the, the Coke and mm -hmm. stagger use so that the sitter can use an hour later too. And um, just make sure that nobody's going to drop of an overdose because they can be, um, they don't have to be fatal if somebody is there with naloxone and knows how to use it. Mm -hmm. No, that's good to know. So let's say I have a friend um, who would like to try cocaine and I personally don't use it, but I'd like to be a supportive friend and help them. Um, you know, experiment for the first time or if they're experienced, you know, just keep providing that support. How do I do that? Yeah, you can be like that sitter or designated driver and sit with the person and just watch over them, make sure they're having a good time mm -hmm. and that they're not going to go and sleep it off alone. Many times in party atmospheres, that's one of the biggest mistakes I've seen people make is the person gets tired and they send them off to sleep it off. And um, yeah, that's just sit with the person if they want to rest, watch their count their breathing. And as long as they're uh, breathing more than 10 breaths per minute, then they're probably doing okay. What are some other signs of, I guess, an overdose that you should be watching out for? Yeah, so an opioid overdose, um, things like blue, pale skin, gurgling sounds, um, 
slow or no breathing at all, blue lips, um, pale skin. Those are some of the signs, it's, it's symptoms. It looks like someone's sleeping, mm -hmm. going to sleep, and then they're gonna start to turn blue because they're not getting oxygen. So is there, I know like I've had first aid training, do you need to put them in any sort of position while you go get your naloxone? Yeah, you should put them into the recovery position, go get the naloxone, and then lay them on their back when you're ready to respond and give that person some rescue breaths. Um, you can keep someone alive by just breathing for them if, you, if there is no naloxone available. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, good to know. And please come get trained uh, by one of the staff at Turning Point. We're happy to come out and do that as well. Yes, yes. Uh, valuable resource in our community. Um, so we talked about uh, the get your drugs tested. Um, how about ways that you can test your drugs for fentanyl at home? Is there mm -hmm. is there any services where you can get something sent to you by mail order or where you can purchase test strips for, for fentanyl? Yeah, there you can purchase test strips at dollar stores, carry them, order them online. They're a little bit limited in their technology because um, some of the more potent opioids like carfentanil they won't pick up on mm. and it doesn't tell you how much fentanyl is in there a percentage right just it that will it's just there. say that it's there yeah and some of the newer analogs that are coming coming out maybe the test strip won't pick up mm -hmm. um, it, it's better than nothing but i would still far prefer to send it in to getyourdrugstested.com yeah absolutely and i'm assuming this getyourdrugstested.com service is Confidential, confidential, all of free. that. Okay. Yeah, free of charge. And you, you don't put your own return address. You just put mm -hmm. a phony return address. And this service is tested, um, I think, on around a hundred thousand substances now, and hasn't had the police stop any substances or anything. No, and yet, that so. I mean, why would they? It's yeah. it helps prevent overdoses, right? It's yeah. it's a good good service. Exactly. Um, okay, how about withdrawing from cocaine? Um, let's say I have an active substance use disorder and I'm trying to come off of cocaine. What do I need to expect in terms of withdrawals? Uh, so stopping abruptly is one of the hardest things to do. Um, even though cocaine doesn't really have a strong addictive pull in terms of uh, physical dependence, mm. it's still gonna be very hard to stop abruptly. So try to taper down over a number of weeks or, or something on your own if you can. Um, withdrawal will probably be, be marked by three major things. Severe cravings that can set in within 90 minutes of st suddenly stopping. So that psychological drive to go get more. Mm -hmm. um, depression could be um, setting in after repeated use and then stopping because all of those feel-good chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, um, are being released. So. Um, once you stop cocaine use, there could be that crash after for weeks or sometimes months afterwards. So see a medical professional, get treated by a doctor. Maybe there's some depression and, and suicidal thoughts to, to look after. So see a medical medical health professional um, and go to uh, Safe Harbor where there's a medically assisted detox. There you can um, talk to medical professionals and be treated medically for those withdrawal symptoms um, mm -hmm. by by professionals. Don't try and tough it out yourself. It's it's very tough to do alone. Yeah. So reach out for help. Yeah. No, it's good to know. So if I go to Safe Harbor, is that also a free service that I can access? Are there any requirements for me to get in? No, that's a free service that you show up um, and they triage and depending 
um, first come, first serve, who gets in that day. And that's a seven to, day, seven to 10 day detox period. Mm -hmm. And then after that, someone can choose to go to treatment if they want to. Um, there are wait times to get into treatment centers most times. So it, that's a residential treatment center to go and live somewhere for 30, 60, 90 days or an mm -hmm. extended period. Um, seek out an addictions counselor to help you find a, a treatment center before going to detox to make that seamless to go right from, from detox to treatment if that's what the person wants to do. So what treatment centers are around in central Alberta? Like how many are there? What are their different, um, I guess, characteristics? Yeah, they're, they're all different. Some of them have different requirements. Some don't want to see people on medications like Suboxone or Methadone or um, Benzodiazepines. It all depends on the treatment center. And um, the wait times are different for, for all of them as well. Um, I know there's Shunda Creek uh, out west of Rocky. There's I Recover in the central zone. There's also, um, there's not that many really in mm -hmm. central Alberta. Most people are having to travel to Edmonton or Calgary or northern Alberta to go gotcha. to treatment. So there's, um, there's not enough treatment centers and hopefully they're building more, Yeah. which the more the better, uh, in my opinion. So hopefully there will be more options for people going down the road. Definitely a gap in our in our healthcare system. Um, Alberta wide, do you know if Alberta is home to any indigenous treatment centers? Yeah, there there are a few. I know there's Kainai. Mm -hmm. Um, they have a treatment center there, and I think there is some more in the works in central Alberta. I think there's more coming, and. Yeah, I wish I knew more about. No, it's all good. It's definitely something uh, I need to look into to be more informed on because it's a central part of healthcare. Absolutely. People deserve to be able to recover. Um, so you touched on a whole bunch of different organizations while we've been talking. Who else have we missed that somebody who is struggling with a substance abuse disorder should reach out to um, if they need a little bit of extra help? Yeah, definitely the 49th Street Addictions and Mental Health. Um, they're, they're a great resource to reach out to. There's Smart Recovery. There's Wellbriety, which is an Indigenous-focused um, recovery program. There's Cocaine Anonymous, Alcoholic, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, which is that abstinence-based 12-step recovery. Um, Mom Stop the Harm is more geared towards friends and family, um, a resource for friends and family who are... Uh, loved ones who are uh, for people who are using substances they're a great resource for people to reach out to mm -hmm. safe harbor detox and turning point society of central alberta so i guess you said that you've used before you've experimented how was that experience for you yeah the, it was um i consider the early part of my substance use journey life enhancing so this is early on when i went to raves in the late 90s and experimented with psychedelics in high school and after high school. That helped me, I, I consider it non-problematic and life enhancing because it helped me cut loose, go and um, experience different cultures and be in a, in a place like a rave setting where there's a whole bunch of different people from different walks of life in, in one roof having, mm -hmm. having a good time together. So um, I didn't really develop, develop a problem until I had multiple injuries and then were introduced to opioids and that's where I developed my substance use disorder right. and went on to methadone in um, as a, a replacement or a maintenance therapy for opioid use disorder and that helped me along with family support which um, if it wasn't for my family I wouldn't be here today they allowed me to live with them for a year to stabilize I didn't go to a treatment center my parents kind of provided that treatment center for me 
Um, because even back then there was gaps in service and the methadone program I accessed had a 30 day wait time and they, um, they had troubles finding a home in Calgary. They had to move from place to place because of NIMBYism and they didn't want a methadone clinic in, in this community, in that community. So yeah. same sorts of things of stigma um, that we face today now with overdose prevention sites. And um, it's been around for a long time, the stigma, and people don't want that in their backyard. You do, though, because the alternative is people are overdosing in your backyard. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know? that's far worse. It's just it's crazy to me that people have such a pushback to wanting other people to get better. Um, I mean, I, I feel like Central Alberta really has a mindset of uh, look after yourself and if you can't, you're weak kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely don't like that. <laughs> I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to go about changing it. But it's just it's it's not the way that life goes. You need help sometimes. Well, especially with things like substance use disorder or addiction. That's how people do get better is by having community and um, healthy supports around them. Mm-hmm. Um, sending somebody to hit rock bottom could mean death now. And yeah. I consider my substance use journey very privileged because I could experiment. I could use all these different substances and not worry about dying. Mm-hmm. Um, where now it is a little bit different where there is that cross-contamination. Opioids are turning up, potent opioids are turning up in all sorts of different classifications of drugs. So it's not the same. Um, people can experiment and that experimentation phase of life is very important um, as the brain's, um, when the brain's fully developed, yes. of course. Yeah. Wait until your, your brain cells are all there. Yeah, ideally. Hmm. So you had mentioned uh, you had gone on methadone. What, because um, I've had family experiences with uh, that particular um, substitute. So they put you on it and then do they wean you off gradually? Yeah, that's the idea. Some people will wean off over time or people might stay on it for the rest of their life if they have pain to manage or if they start to wean down and things just aren't going well. Um, Some people may have to use opioids for the rest of their life for pain management. And the thing that's not talked about enough is that opioids are great for physical pain, like um, back pain and physical bone breaks. For labor and delivery, they use fentanyl in the hospital every day. Um, So it is great for physical pain, but it's also, it works on emotional pain and cultural pain, spiritual pain, all these other kinds of pain as well. And that's what's not talked about enough. And so my experience was, yeah, I had opioids and I loved them. And I didn't develop a problem right away, but um, over time I did, I I just couldn't stop on my own. And I tried multiple times to white knuckle it, to just cold turkey. And especially with opioids, um, it's very difficult to, to stop cold turkey like that. And any doctor would never recommend that these days. No. And um, the thing that's turning up in the, the street supply of heroin now is benzodiazepines are showing up in about half the samples. Yeah. So coming off of benzodiazepines is even more dangerous than opioids. So that's something to consider when, when somebody is using opioids daily from the street supply. Yeah. With the... With that drug you had mentioned, um, what what are the risks of that? Like, why is it more dangerous to come off of that than it is to come off of regular heroin? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So typically, um, opioids aren't fatal to come off of when someone discontinues. They're very uncomfortable. So withdrawal will look like cold sweats, um, tearing up, and the, the nose will start to run. And then people will experience bone pain, chills, cold sweats, 
and then actually feel pain in their joints and bones um, because their internal opioid system isn't working as well as it used to when mm -hmm. they're taking external opioids. And uh, that's why I continued to use um, is the withdrawal was just so gross and so nasty to deal with that I would just continue to use. Yeah. Um, so that in combination, benzodiazepines are in the same safety classification as alcohol where if somebody stops abruptly who's been taking them for a long time, they're at risk of seizure, um, they're at risk of death, it, they're, they're very unsafe to come off of mm -hmm. abruptly. And benzodiazepines are in about half the sample of, of down that's out there right now. Right. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. My, um, my mom has had a long, long history of addictions. She is two years sober right now, which is awesome. Congrats. Uh, thanks, I'll pass that along. Yeah. Um, she had gone to prison in 2020 and was very, very addicted to meth. We're talking like a 20-year addiction here. Um, and she came off of it uh, completely cold turkey without assistance of any medications because she didn't want to be addicted to anything else, right? She she knew her nature. She knew that she, you know, trended towards addictions for, for almost everything. And um, she just came off of it cold turkey. And we were writing letters at that point. Um, it was COVID, so the phones and stuff, you know, the high touch contacts and all that, they weren't letting them do that. Letters was the only way we could uh, communicate. And just watching, um, I could tell that she was going through it in her letters. It was just, it was sad seeing how scrambled her brain was when I'm reading through these letters and she's jumping from, from topic to topic. And, and I could just, you know, feel her trying to keep her head focused on, on one thing. Um, it's, it's so necessary to have those kinds of supports in place and that education. Um, because I, she's one of those where she has an inherent distrust of authority and, um, just, wanted to get through it by herself when in reality she she could have gotten help. They they could have supported her through this, but they also wanted to put her on a bunch of antipsychotic meds as well. So she was just very hesitant to do any of it. And it was really hard to to know that she was going through that and not be able to go see her and support her. Oh, that's so, yeah, that's so tough to go through alone like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and she, she drank for a very long time since she mid-teen, I think. Um, and she got to the point where she couldn't get out of bed without a drink. And um, one of her friends had passed away from alcohol poisoning. And so she decided it was finally time for her to come off the alcohol. And at that time, I was living with her. And she kicked me out of the house for a week. I went and I lived with a friend. And again, she didn't do it with the help of any medicine. And so I had a line of people uh, lined up to go check in on her. Like I'd be calling them like, hey, have you checked in on mom today? You know, the key's under the mat. Please go in and, and see her. Um, and I think there was about a 12 hour period where I couldn't get a hold of anybody and nobody had checked in on her. So I went home and oh my goodness, let me tell you, she, she was hallucinating. Um, 
she was sweating everywhere. Like it was just, it was terrifying to see, but I was glad I had come home um, because people definitely weren't checking in on her as often as they should. And she was very upset with me that I had come back and I told her, I don't care. I I literally don't care. (laughs) Yeah. I just want to make sure you're okay and be able to support you through this because, you know, I, I love my mom and I have supported her regardless of what she's decided to do with her life. That's her own choices. Um, she is my mom, right? So I've, I've told her, I don't, I don't really care what you're doing. I just, I want you to be safe. I want you to be alive. And so let me come and check in on you. Um, and we got through it. And funny story, she cannot cook <laughs> at all. Um, it was seven in the morning and she was finally feeling normal. And, uh, she came into my room as I'm an early riser. So I was up and she's like, do you want pork chops? I said, it's seven in the morning. She's like, yeah, do you want some? I'm like, absolutely. So <laughs> we made pork chops at seven in the morning. And it was the first um, first time I'd really gotten to see her, not on alcohol. And probably one of my favorite, favorite memories with her. Oh, that's such a great memory. Yeah. Yeah, I want pork chops now. <laughs> 7 a.m. pork chops, yeah. Yeah, pork chops for <laughs> breakfast, that's delicious. Yeah, no, they're really good too. Like I said, she cannot cook. I've tried to teach her, she just can't. <laughs> Um, but those pork chops are amazing. That's something common I see in myself and many of the people I work with is we want to do everything ourselves and I have a real hard time reaching out for help too. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to have systems in place that when per- a person does make that um, lunge out for help that we know where to point them and we can take that motivation and turn it into positive change because yeah. Um, so many times people come into my office really motivated for change and then hear that there's a three-week, six-week, eight-week wait to get into a treatment center and then they leave feeling a little bit defeated and like, well, well why bother yeah. if I got to wait for that long? So having systems in place where people can be supported and uh, kudos to your mom because um, some people, that's what they want to do and they will use that motivation of how difficult that experience was um, to use that as fuel to never use again. So yeah. I tried that a number of times and kudos to your mom. Yeah. That's it's yeah. been two years and going strong. You know, and I'm kudos very to proud you of for, her. for supporting her through that. That's tough to do. Yeah. I mean, again, she's my mom. So I, I love her. I ended up getting put up for adoption and I didn't see her for 14 years. Um, and I came back and she was very, I think she was frustrated and disappointed in herself. Um, I remember us walking down the street one day and she said, you know, this wasn't how I pictured you coming back. I wanted to be cleaned up. I wanted to have my life in order. And I said, I don't care. You're alive. Yeah. That's all that really matters to me. Yeah. What a beautiful moment. Yeah. That morning cooking for chops. Yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. I haven't tried Coke ever. Um, that was one of the main substances my mom was addicted to when I was a kid. Um, and I'm glad you talked about, you know, the depression, um, that happens when you come off of it. She, uh, she had been on a, I think it was a three day bender and was coming off of it. And just that depression was just rolling in. Mm -hmm. And my family has a history of mental illness. Um, my mom and my grandmother both have bipolar disorder. And so when the depression rolled in, she just could not fight it. And she tried to attempt suicide. Um, and I, I personally don't know how often this happens with people who are using cocaine really heavily, but I'm really glad you talked about that because I feel like when it's used recreationally, that aspect is not 
it's not really talked about it's not mentioned and it's so important to know yeah especially when somebody um that's why i mentioned just take note of why someone's using the substance and just make a note of it um, and then you'll start to recognize the patterns am i starting to use this um, to get out of bed in the morning to do my chores to go to yeah. school and study longer yeah. if am i using it to cope um, and then you'll start to notice these kind of things and hopefully catch it before it gets um, ingrained because mm -hmm. the longer um, a person uses the harder it is to come off of and the longer that crash after might be yeah um, so yeah i was i would always say get in contact with medical professionals yeah um, but also too if if there's supportive family members who can support someone through like you did mm -hmm. that's that's an ideal too because look at the healing that came for you and your mom through that whole process yeah absolutely that's amazing. we've been trying to reclaim our identities we're um indigenous in my family so both sides of my mom's family is indigenous and then my dad is clearly a white dude yeah um but we've been, when she got out of prison, they sent her to a, um, an Indigenous healing center in BC. And she wasn't raised Indigenous. Um, my grandma actually made my mom and all of her sisters lie and tell everyone they were Hawaiian um, because <laughs> being Native was not a good thing back no. in the 80s, right? To avoid residential school. Well, that's where my grandmother came from. Um, and so my mom lived her whole life with no desire to know her identity, to find out where we come from, to meet our own people. And when I was born, um, I mean, my grandmother's first words were, oh my God, she's white. <laughs> you know, they were all just, they were shocked. Um, and, and now we're, since my mom's been to that healing center, it's been a reclamation for ourselves because we're able to identify that and identify the intergenerational trauma that comes with being part of a lineage that is of indigenous descent. And now we have found our band. Uh, we are, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but we are from uh, the Grand Prairie region. And uh, my mom is able to get her status for herself and all of her kids. So I have two younger brothers as well, um, which is awesome because being third generation in my family, I didn't think I was ever going to see status in my life. And it's not like it's something that I need, but that piece of my identity that's missing is something that I feel a lot. Right. It, it's strange as an adopted kid reconnected with your family and still not knowing where you guys came from. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been an awesome journey with my mom. It's been great to see her sober. She's working a normal job now. Uh, she was a, a prostitute for almost 25 years. So the shift from that doing drugs, drinking all the time to living on her own and working regular job it's just it's incredible to see yeah what a shift holy yeah yeah no, that's very very proud of her yeah that's so healing to see yeah come full circle like that that's amazing yeah no i'm it's amazing i didn't think it was gonna happen and i can say this because she knows that we had sat her down and tried to stage almost a an intervention mm -hmm. um not to get her to stop but just to get her to think where we're like, mom, you're getting old. You know, you, you can't do this forever. Um, you know, is this is this how you want your life to end? Because she was getting into some really risky stuff and that's where it was heading. And um, she told us in no uncertain terms, uh, yeah, this is how my, my life is gonna go. I, I don't get a white picket fence. I don't get 
a regular life. This is the life I've chosen and I'm going to follow it through. And at that point, I just, I had accepted it, you know, like that. Okay. If that's your choice, that's fine. I'm at peace with that. But I had to get my own thoughts on the table. And now to, yeah, to see recovery is, it's amazing. Um, and I want to spread the word of that, that that can happen. Right. Yeah. I think that you often, you lose hope and losing hope for people looks in different ways. Right. You know, I have always supported my mom, but I definitely had lost hope. Right. So yeah, it, it can happen. You just gotta, you gotta be a staunch supporter. Yeah. Never give up on people, no matter what kind of behavior or risky, um, if, if it's too much for the family to deal with, call us at turning point. Maybe we can help. And, um, yeah, it's staying connected to healthy people. That's how people are going to heal. Uh, I think it's Gabor Mate who says the mm -hmm. opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. So we need to find healthy connections for people. Um, it's really hard for people to make those changes um, when they're in that lifestyle for a long time. So when yeah. people do reach out and do change, it's important to remember that um, slip ups do happen and people may go back, um, but they're not going back. They're not losing all that time. They're going back with a new new perspective. And so always support people, even if they've slipped up. Um, just just support people no matter where they're at on yeah. their journey. Yeah, my mom had gotten had gotten uh, sober from the alcohol, like I mentioned. Um, a year later, I wasn't living with her at this point. She called me. I guess her boyfriend had cheated on her and she had drank an entire bottle of wine and was sitting on the floor crying. This is her first time in the year that she had drank. I'm like, okay, what do you need? And she was like, I don't know, I just need you here. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna grab coffees and I'll be there as soon as I can. And I just sat there with her while she cried. And, you know, I didn't I didn't judge her for drinking again. I understood. Um, I think there was a part, part of me that knew that she had done it once. You know, she can she can get back to this again. Yeah, exactly. That's how recovery looks for most is it takes multiple times. So being that lifeline for somebody, that's so valuable. Yeah. Um, my family was the same for me. They allowed me to live with them. I remember um, injecting drugs in their home while I stabled out on my methadone and they they fully supported me until I think they knew they had tried every approach they tried the tough love approach they tried the intervention model um, they tried all these tough love things that didn't work so um, just regular love support um, no matter where people are at is what people need yeah. and call us at turning point call mom stop the harm if there's family members and loved ones out there who are wondering what to do with a family member in this situation. Yeah, I think at the root of it all, it's just realizing that people are people. Yeah. You know, they're, they're no less of a person because they have a substance abuse disorder. Yeah, it's still exactly. people. Still people. Thank you so much, Kevin, for joining me on today's episode about cocaine. Please tune in next time where we are going to talk about alcohol. Have a great day. Be safe and have fun.